Welcome to Writers on Writing. I'm your host, Marie Stone. Today, I welcome back Alexis Shaken to talk about her latest novel, Elsewhere. Alexis was on the show with me in February of 2020 with her debut novel, Saint X. Today, we'll chat about some similar themes that emerge between the two books, new ways to explore the timeless topic of motherhood, insights into writing speculative fiction, and more. Before I bring Alexis on, a quick reminder that we're now offering some great perks on Patreon. We started the page to keep in better touch with you and get your feedback, as well as offer some fun writing tips and tricks. You can see all the benefits by visiting www.patreon.com backslash writers on writing. Any level of support helps if the show has boosted your writing in some way, if you've gotten some useful advice, this is an easy way to reach back out to us and we appreciate it all. On with the show. Alexis, welcome back. Thank you so much. It's so nice to be back. Oh, it's so fun to have you back. And and as we were just talking about a moment ago, before we dive into this book, you know, we talked last time in February of 2020, and who knew that you were releasing a debut novel set in an idyllic sort of vacation spot straight into the eye of a pandemic. And I couldn't decide if that was an ideal time because people had some downtime to read and craved a little escape, or if it was you know, kind of terrible timing because presumably all of your events were canceled. I was just wondering in, in the aftermath of when we talked, how, how that all kind of unfolded for you. Well, I, you know, I think in the grand scheme of the pandemic, I think, and in terms of my book and, and the pandemic, I think I ultimately just felt really lucky because my pub date was February 20th, which meant that there were a few weeks before everything shut down that were just normal. And so, you know, I think professionally for the book, I think that was probably good because it kind of got out into the world and into bookstores and and review coverage before everything we were thinking about was COVID. But also just personally, you know, publishing your first novel is such a huge deal personally. And I got to have readings surrounded by people who had supported me and my writing over my whole life and be surrounded by friends. And I got to celebrate. And I, you know, I was really just thinking about everyone whose books came out in March, in April, in May, and just, you know, this, it's such a, you know, it's like you've finally done it. You've published your first book and you're just kind of alone in your house. So Mm -hmm. I actually felt really lucky like by a few weeks I got to have some of those like classic pub day experiences it was such a it was such a terrific novel and I can see so many sort of echoes between the two books and we can unpack that and you know obviously they're very different but I can see what was on your mind and I know the last time we talked you talked about you know how important a sense of place is to you so so we can get into all of that but i'll let you because i know nobody has read this yet because it's it's just coming out at the end of the month so i'll let you sort of set the the stage for us and and take us into this world and we can jump off from there sure so elsewhere you know it's nice to hear you say that you see echoes between this and saint acts but it is also <laughs> very different um <laughs> yeah. so this is this is um that was sort of a thriller slash mystery and this is speculative elsewhere takes the reader to this remote isolated town um high in the mountains it's a very kind of mist covered damp moss everywhere sort of atmospheric little community nobody ever leaves this town and almost never does anybody come from from elsewhere from the outside it's a place that kind of keeps itself a secret from the rest of the world and they do that because they suffer from this what they call the affliction and what that is is that every so often a mother will disappear from the town and truly in a in a sort of magical way she will kind of vanish into the clouds the community will wake up in the morning and find that she is is gone And they don't know why this happens. They don't know how it happens, but they think that they know, they believe that they know 
why the mothers who disappear are chosen. And they think that these mothers, different as they might appear on the surface, all have something about the way they mother, the nature of the love they feel for their children that is out of balance in some way. And so because of that, you know, the, the community is always kind of scrutinizing mothers, looking, you know, picking apart the way they interact with their children, speculating about which mothers will be next, who looks vulnerable. They have rituals that they enact when a mother vanishes to kind of erase her from the record. And they really believe that this affliction gives their lives a kind of like depth and meaning that living in the shadow of this possibility of a mother vanishing at any moment gives their love a kind of wildness and intensity that people in the rest of the world could never understand. And the narrator, Vera, is, you know, a teenager living in this town when the story begins. And so she's kind of right on the verge of finding a partner, marrying, becoming a mother. And she kind of takes us on that journey with her, which obviously carries with it ultimately once she does become a mother, this question of, is she going to be able to stay and stay with her child or is she just going to kind of lose herself and disappear? I know the last time we talked, you said St. X really began with this sense of place and the sense of place in this novel, as you're describing it, is so strong. And I was wondering if if that was, again, the starting point for you was imagining this world ahead of maybe imagining a character like Vera. I mean, it really was. I think for me, it, I think the reason that place comes first for me is because what I, I think the thing that drives me and kind of seduces me into a story is like how I want the reader to feel while they're reading it, kind of the atmosphere that I want to have like wafting off the page, mm-hmm. if that mm-hmm. makes sense. And so, yeah, with St. X, you know, it's set in the Caribbean and it is the story of a girl's like mysterious death. And, and, and so it, it has a murder mystery element, but First I knew, okay, we're in this setting, this kind of seemingly idyllic paradise and something has happened. And I didn't know what that something was. I didn't figure out the, the, you know, the murder and all that until later. And it was very similar with this. I had the idea of this town, of this place that, you know, I could feel it like, and I had been places like this that were kind of inspirations for it. I was once traveling alone and I don't even want to say like where in the world I was because in the novel, this town is not set in any specific part of our own world. But, but I was staying at this guest house and it was high in the mountains and, you know, there was ivy overgrowing all the buildings and every afternoon, this whole mountain valley just filled with clouds. And I, like, I have this vivid memory of I was sitting in this room that had been, I guess, a library at one point and the door was open and there to the outside and there were like leaves blowing in across the ground and there was, you could just see the mist like flowing into the room. (laughs) And, and that was definitely like, it was a place where I said, I'm definitely, you know, this is so evocative. And I knew I wanted to write something kind of set in, in a place like that. And then I, you know, for a long time, I had this sense of, okay, like, well, there's this, there's this town and it has this vibe and these aesthetics and something dark is happening there. Something bad that these people are not leaving. They're kind of embracing, but I didn't know what it was. And it really wasn't until, you know, a few years later when I had a young kid that I sort of said, oh, well, maybe what it is, maybe the the dark thing that's happening in this place that I feel so vividly is that mothers are disappearing. We should also mention that in addition to this evocative place, it's very much out of time. Mm -hmm. And you had to be very careful with how you set this to not give any technological clues or, I mean, it's just very, (laughs) it's just very timeless, right? I mean, they eat goats and there's like, it feels uh, you know, old and otherworldly um, in that way, you know, it kind of feels ancient, but not, I mean, but maybe not, you know, there's cameras, there's photography. So, you know, the reader is kind of trying to grip on to this very slippery notion of setting themselves in time. And you had to make some really 
specific choices, not not only in the objects you chose to use, but also even in the dialogue. The word choices and language and how language changes over time and over geography had to go into your thinking as well. So talk a little bit about kind of setting the rules through words. Yeah, I mean, I think intuitively I had this sense from the beginning that this this town is a somewhat like mythical elemental place that it's and that you don't quite, you know, you don't know, I would, you know, you could say you don't know where or when you are in place or in time, but I would say it's not even that you don't know, it's that like, it's not really set in a specific place or a specific time. And it, and so there was the funny story, and then I'll kind of talk about it a little bit more, but like, I had to go through this manuscript at one point and do a word search for the word plastic. (laughs) <laughs> and anywhere I had used the word plastic because I was like, no, nope, um, I don't know when we are. And I don't even really know when plastic started kind of being pervasive, but I just don't want the reader thinking about something that has that kind of modern tactility or feel to it. So yeah, I think it was a difficult needle to thread because I wanted it to have that elemental kind of fable-like feeling, yeah. but I also really wanted all of these characters to feel urgent and relatable and emotional and not like allegorical figures. So it was a balance of, okay, like they're, they're going, you know, they're not going to have plastic. They're not going to have phones. There's no mention of electricity, which it doesn't say that they have it or that they don't, it's just not mentioned. Right. Mm -hmm. And so some of it, some of, some of the threading of the needle was just what can I evade in terms of, (laughs) in terms of this world? I like, I don't want the reader to wonder, do they have electricity or not? I just want the reader to be in the story. Um, And the best way to do that was to kind of cut any place where I had a person turning on a light or something like that. (laughs) But I did want there to be this sense of Vera is an ordinary girl and this world is normal to her. And she's surrounded by her peer group of other girls. And so there are moments when they are, you know, they're not using our contemporary slang, but they're, you know, they're chatty. They're not speaking in a sort of archaic way. You know, they're being sarcastic with each other and obnoxious to each other and all of that. And so, and I kind of like the way that sort of teenage girl mm-hmm. <laughs> like life and interiority <laughs> sits with and kind of has, is intention with this kind of ethereal world that they inhabit. This might be one of those questions that just leads to radio silence because <laughs> I'm unpacking it for myself too. But I had recently this interesting conversation with, I think it was with Lee Cole. He wrote a book recently called Groundskeeping, I believe. And the sense of place in that novel also was just incredibly strong. And he was talking about the difference between place and setting. And place, he thought, was a specific area. And setting was really this mood creation. And I was wondering if you had given any thought to that issue, if place and setting are kind of the same thing in your mind, or if if there was a difference between this particular town village that this is in versus the overall atmospheric setting that you were trying to create and, you know, kind of if those words should be used interchangeably, or if you really think of them as two different things. Huh, that's a really interesting question. So, you know, my first instinct is to think, and I don't know which of these I would assign place and which one I would assign setting, but, um, <laughs> but I would think that one of those is the thing before it's processed through a literary sensibility. And one of them is like the, I guess I would say place is that maybe. And mm-hmm. then in my mind, I, I'm, I'm not sure if these have kind of formal definitions, but that setting is, is that place processed through a particular sensibility. And so I guess one of the things that was interesting to me, and that kind of like sets this book apart from other things I've tried to write, and is is that, you know, so often in fiction, your setting evolves alongside your characters, right? Places aren't static, they change, they become something else. You know, my first novel, St. X, the transformation of place was just kind of went hand in hand with the transformation of character. You know, this, what began as sort of an undeveloped tropical island, saw the arrival of tourism and it, and it became a completely different place. And one of the things, and, and so it was a, a lot of the exploration of character was bound up in that question of how do you change in relation to kind of 
the changes in the place that you are bound to. And one of the things that was an interesting challenge in elsewhere is this town does not transform. It has that sort of eternal quality and it's cut off from time. It's cut off from evolution of, you know, technology, of morals, of, of everything in the rest of the world. But how it appears to Vera changes really drastically <laughs> right. over the course of the novel. So, so I think, you know, I guess I kind of think of, of setting as it's its own thing. And here it's powerful and evocative in its own way. But it's, I'm always just the most interested in how like the places we're from, the places we feel connected to inform our identity. And, you know, for Vera, her relation to this very changeless place changes so much as she kind of begins to understand more about who she is, as she becomes a mother, as she kind of confronts the vulnerability of being a mother in this specific setting. So I don't know. I, I don't feel like I really answered your question. You did. But, no, you really but, did. I love that answer. And as I'm thinking between this novel and Saint X, you're right. I mean, and I'm not going to give too much away about this, but experiencing a place through your memory of it and the evolution of the character and how the place changes because the character has evolved, I think is really interesting. And that that really is a dialogue between these two books. They both shared that quality. For writers who pick this book up and study it, I would just point out how you managed the the beginning of the novel and the ending of the novel to be in such close conversation with each other that I think brings this exact point home of how the place changed from the beginning to the end, which is in reality, not at all. And through the character, you know, 180 degrees, right? So I, I think that was really masterfully handled. I don't know if you have anything to say about finding your way into a story and finding your way out of it, because I think that's always a challenge and how you manage that in this one. Well, you know, it's interesting that you say finding your way in and finding your way out, which suggests logically that you find your way in first and out second. But um, <laughs> that wasn't, I, I, that wasn't my experience with this. And it, I don't think it's, I, I often have a really clear sense of where I want a story to leave the reader and to leave characters and kind of what I want that closing emotion to be and no idea how to start the book. So that was, <laughs> that was how this worked. I wrote the closing page, few pages, not at the very beginning. I had a ton of false starts that were way off base, but, but probably like a year and a half before I figured out where to start the story. And I think for me, it's one of those things, you know, people say, like once you've figured out the title, it's when you've really figured out what the book is about. And I think for me, that's also kind of once you figure out what you're beginning with is where you're kind of, now I understand where I want to kind of focus this reader's attention because I really wrestled with where to start this story. There's a stranger who comes to the town who really upends things. And I tried versions where the novel started the minute she stepped into town. I tried versions that started with kind of just explaining the affliction a little bit to give the reader really solid footing. And I even tried kind of starting it where it ends and having the whole thing be a flashback. Um, I really struggled with that. And in the end, it begins with just this very evocative, well, I shouldn't say it's evocative because I wrote it. So it is. It's evocative, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, you know, it's this very lyrical, I guess I would say, just description of, of the setting of their town from this kind of collective we voice. And I think, and that, like, once I did that, I said, okay, just, just kind of what you said in your question, it, it does dovetail with the closing pages in a way that kind of clarified for me how much this book is about sort of the binding power of place, how deeply identity and who we are is rooted in like where we've come from. There's a line towards the very end of the novel, maybe on the last page or second to last page, that it's something like, it seems to me everyone has come from a place they will never move on from, a place they hate and love in equal measure. And and I think that was a lot of what I was interested in exploring. Like the people in this town, it's a, it's a weird speculative place, but they love it because it's home and they, you know, they know it has darkness. They obviously know it's not good on the surface that mothers are vanishing, but this is their world and 
they have like a conviction in just its value because it's home. And I, I think that was something I was really interested in exploring. It's so funny you should say that because after I finished it, I went to look up descriptions of it because I thought, did anybody use the word utopia or dystopia? Because mm-hmm. I don't know what it is. And it is neither. <laughs> it is yeah, both. Uh, it is neither. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was interested in that challenge of, you know, I think these kind of, you know, it fits within a genre, right? Like it's kind of folk horror, speculative novel about an enclosed community. And almost always those are places where the people kind of think they're in a utopia, but we look and we think they're in a dystopia. (laughs) Um, And I was really interested in kind of playing with those expectations and saying, and just not dismissing what the people in the town see as the value of the place they're from. I think there's a lot of sort of cult-like communal mentality stuff going on in this story, but they're not crazy. They're not deluded completely. They understand the darkness of what they're living with. And I don't think they're, I just didn't want, I wanted to see if I could get the reader to start to really feel it from their perspective and not see it as just purely horrific and, and awful and just sort of start to understand what they love about this place. So let's unpack a little bit of how you accomplish this, the rule building of speculative fiction, because Mm -hmm. you mentioned at the beginning, at some point, there was a version that was very didactic of, I'm just going to tell you how this whole affliction works. This is not that. So you implanted little seeds throughout to make us kind of understand how things worked. Some things weren't even really ever explained. And I don't think it gives too much away to say there is a practice these women do when they're making love to their husbands, they prick them with the, a hairpin and suck their blood. They do. And that's, yeah, and that's never really full. I mean, we just kind of internally feel mm-hmm. why they do that. It's, it's explored a little bit of why they do that, but we're made to understand it's odd, but it's universal there. And, but it's not fully, you know, the whole tradition of it isn't spelled out for us. And so there are a lot of things like that where, we kind of feel the rules, but we don't fully understand the rules. <laughs> and um, I don't know if you can say anything about that, how you accomplished that without being didactic, how you came up with some of those rules. And if there were rules that you worked in that you had to say, uh, it's not going to work. Well, I, I think as a reader, I just love the feeling that I've been kind of deposited in a, in a world where I don't know the rules, where all of the, the signifiers and, and the objects and the traditions and everything are completely different. And I kind of have to learn that, that world. It's, you know, it's sort of how reading is like a kind of travel. And I think that it was, it was really important to me that the reader could dive right into the plot, into the narrative and feel a sense of momentum and not feel like, okay, before I can see what's going to happen in this world, I have to fully understand everything in this world. I have to kind of learn the world. So I really wanted to, to see if I could, and it took a, it took a lot of trial and error, but I wanted to structure the book in such a way that the reader understands enough of what certain rituals mean to the people in the town to follow along with the plot and the the emotional arcs as they kind of slowly figure things out. And so I think they were just thinking in terms of craft technique. There were probably like two things that helped me do that the most. The first is that Vera, who's our narrator, is narrating as if this story will be understandable to everyone who reads it. She's not kind of stopping to explain oh, this is, you know, this is what, why we prick our husbands, or this is why the women in this town eat this certain fruit that grows in a grove, or this is why when a strange bird that is not from this area flew into our town, we drowned it in our river. Like these things are not ever kind of explained as if she's talking to some outsider. But the trick I think was that as she's kind of telling the stories of these things that happen, she has to drop enough hints that the reader can get a good enough idea of what this, what these, what these things mean to the characters in that world. And then I think the second thing that really helped me kind of teach the reader how to live in this world without having to, like you said, be didactic was that the first big plot movement is a stranger arriving in town. 
somebody who comes to the town who has no knowledge of this place. And so Vera is kind of telling the story of watching this stranger move through town and get her bearings and figure out what's going on here. So you kind of learn, like you see a woman vanish from the stranger. Like Vera is telling you about watching the stranger when a woman vanished and watching the stranger sort of begin to understand what happens in this town and what the affliction is. And so that was a way of, again, kind of teaching the reader enough without being didactic and without kind of slowing down the narrative momentum. And as I'm thinking about it, and as you're you're talking right now, I'm thinking how useful, because I know you're really well-traveled and I know you have sort of been a, a student mm-hmm. of tourism and, <laughs> and the interesting phenomena that happens with tourism. And I'm thinking how much that probably paid dividends as you're doing this, because the experience very much is, you know, we just recently went to Jordan a couple of months ago and talk about being set in a place where I didn't really understand a lot of the rules or the cultures or the customs or the language or, you know, mm-hmm. and, and this novel felt a little like that, where you're trying to take cues from what's going on around you and, you know, make them make sense within the narrative structure you've got. And so, yeah, all of your travels probably paid a little bit of subconscious dividends as you were putting this together. That definitely was subconscious. Um, I think you're absolutely <laughs> right. But yeah, I didn't think about it. But I, I do think that the stranger, you know, when the stranger arrives, it's like everything is strange to her and everything about her is strange to the townspeople. And I think one of the things that I was really interested in is how how we kind of betray the world we come from through just the tiniest little things that we do. So there's a scene very early on in the novel where, you know, Vera, Vera's father owns a photography shop, like a 24 hour photo kind of place in this town. And Vera is working behind the counter and the stranger comes in to buy something and the stranger stacks her coins on the counter to pay. And Vera kind of tells you, I was shocked when she did that and then kind of explains that in this town, which is a place where kind of community is all and these people are all so deeply intertwined with each other, you would never just put your coins on the counter. You would always hand them directly to the person so that there's physical touch in any kind of exchange. There would always be physical touch so that all day long, your whole day is kind of threaded with a million little touches from everyone you interact with. And so you know, she immediately hones in on this one thing about Vera, uh, about the stranger as evidence of just how different her world is. And, and I think that probably comes from travel because there were, you know, you make a million little faux pas that you would never have even understood could be the wrong thing to do because you don't understand how, how a place you've come to operates. We'll be back with more from Alexis Shaken and elsewhere in just a moment. You're listening to Writers on Writing. Another quick reminder to check out our Patreon page. If you're liking the show, if you've learned anything along the way in our over 24 years or so of thousands of episodes, if you've learned any tips or tricks that may have inched you closer to publication, whatever it is, you can support us and help us as well as help us carry on giving you these chats with the best authors as often as possible. Visit us at www.patreon.com backslash writers on writing. And in return, you'll get weekly writing tips and prompts, some other goodies. Let's get back to it with Alexis Shaken talking about Elsewhere. So we can't shy away from the massive theme that it lies at the core of this book, which is motherhood. Yep. You know, motherhood, like falling in love or some of these big, timeless, novelistic themes that have been explored a billion ways are hard to find new ways into. And this totally did. And so I was wondering if, A, you felt any intimidation about how do I take this timeless topic that, you know, we've, we've read about before and talk about it in a new way and B, how you found, I, I know, I think you were kind of in the depths of, I think you're in the depths of mothering yourself. So <laughs> anyway, talk, talk about kind of unpacking how to, how to get at that theme in a, in a totally new way. 
Yeah, I mean, I think not that, I mean, there's, there are a ton of wonderful speculative novels about motherhood and a, a lot of them that have come out recently, The School for Good Mothers, Night Bitch. I mean, there's so many right now. So this definitely does have its sort of little genre of the moment. But I think for me, writing a speculative, so I have two young kids. I have, I have a five-year-old and I have, well, he's almost five. He'll be five next week, but um, <laughs> or maybe he'll be five when this airs. And I, and I have a baby. So I was pregnant while I kind of wrote the book and she was a newborn as I finished the revisions. And I really think that this was the only kind of book I could write about motherhood was, was something speculative, not set in our own contemporary world. Basically because it's like when my writing time is, is kind of my me time at this point, because I am so kind of in the throes of, of mothering and the idea of sort of spending most of my day giving out snacks and having a fight about how much screen time there's going to be and getting, you know, all of that kind of tedious stuff. And then spending my writing time describing getting out snacks and fighting over screen time. (laughs) You know, it just felt so bleak, to be totally honest. I just felt like, absolutely, I cannot do that. And so creating this whole fictional world, inventing this terrain, inventing this town, felt like a way of writing, of getting at some of the deep things about motherhood I was really interested in without having to spend my writing time thinking about a lot of the tedious contemporary stuff that was what I did all day. And I I think that helped me. But I think also I have my own ambivalences about motherhood, my times when I feel really frustrated and tired of it and and all of that. And and that's in this novel for some of the characters. But part of it for me was writing a character who had a very different experience of motherhood than I did. Vera is very seduced by the role of mother and even by the possibility of, of, you know, losing her identity into motherhood is not to her necessarily a bad thing. She's scared of it because she's worried that maybe that's the first step to disappearing, but she also kind of loves it. And so, so part of it for me was inventing a character who had a very different experience of, of motherhood. And I think that really let me just focus on questions like how much of ourselves should we give to our children? And really kind of, I, I think what I really wanted to render is this mix of, and something I felt like I didn't see a lot elsewhere, elsewhere in the literary landscape, um, was this mix in motherhood of a kind of ecstasy and a sense of danger. Like there's something really powerful about just letting this mother-child relationship be all-encompassing. And yet it's also kind of scary. Yeah. I mean, I really thought that allegorical aspect of it, of disappearing feels so accurate to at least my experience of mothering. It really does feel like whoever you were before has vanished (laughs) and and, um, something new is set in its place and it's both good and bad, but there's something to be mourned while everyone is telling you this is the best thing that could happen to you. And so to actually make that physical, to make the women disappear in a vapor of clouds is perfect. I mean, it really is, yeah. it really is actually the, the psychological experience of it, I think was accurate. And, and to have the other women judging them for what was it about her mothering that um, caused her, you know, to suffer this or enjoy or whatever it is, this affliction. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it just felt so, so right. And I don't know if that Um, is something you more intellectualized your way into or emotionally, psychologically, subconsciously melded your way into? You know, I think for me, a lot of the writing process is this sort of constant um, cycling between like intuition and then interrogation. So you have an intuitive idea about something that could happen. And then And then you sort of, and it's kind of mysterious to you, and then you sort of piece it apart and start to understand thematically how it fits with the book. So I had the idea of Mother's Vanishing, and that was in the beginning, just, it wasn't, it wasn't like, oh, this is perfect. This is a metaphor for the disappearance of a mother's self. You know, it wasn't that. It was, it was just, 
here's this strange, dark, mysterious thing that's happening in this town. And let's see how they build their world around this affliction. And as I, and, and I, you know, as I kept working on it, it, I had this question of what exactly is it that the townspeople believe the affliction is seeing in these mothers that vanish? Um, what is their crime as it were? And I didn't want it to be as simple as, oh, they all lost them, you know, they all kind of erased themselves in motherhood too much. You know, I didn't want it to be that literal for all of them. I mean, it has that element, but, but it really, it, you know, the, the, the vanishing seem random. These mothers are all really different from each other. And so the only thing that the townspeople can come up with, because of course they're so certain that it isn't random because it, it's so central to their lives. They need it to have a meaning. Their explanation is just that each of these mothers had something about the way she loved her child, the nature of her bond with her child that wasn't quite as it should be. So just that sense that there is no way any mother can mother that will free her from the possibility of judgment. You know, some of these mothers disappear and everybody says, oh, like, remember that time she let her kids cross the river when the current was really high? She was too reckless. Or, you know, even if they've all done something like that in the past, you know, or another mother doesn't let anybody else take care of her children. Oh, she was she was too cautious. You know, there's no perfect medium that will sort of have these townspeople say, well, you know. I don't know why she vanished. They're always going to find a reason, something she did wrong. And ain't that how we do (laughs) in real life? (laughs) Yeah. And I think the thing that was really interesting to me also is there's this judgment from without of the community, just kind of picking apart everything these mothers do, but it also goes inside, right? And these mothers are all constantly monitoring themselves, second guessing themselves. You know, Vera, when she is a mother, her daughter Iris is five or six years old. She starts to get really anxious that maybe this is going to happen to her. And she starts to realize that every day she does a thousand things that other people in this town might look back on someday as an indication that she was going to vanish, you know, every little choice, there's always something about it that maybe you didn't do quite right, or maybe it was a little outside the norm. And so I think that the way that like judgment and scrutiny of mothers then colonizes your own mind as you're mothering is something that I wanted to get at. Oh, yeah. Well, and of course, the corollary of motherhood is childhood, and you can't have (laughs) one without the other. So there's almost an equal, not almost, but there, there's, there's a big component of this that is childhood and innocence and losing that innocence and, you know, trying to understand the world and a lot of these children growing up without mothers because they have disappeared. And then that exploration was, was really fun and authentic, I thought also. And, um, and then dealing with that transition, you know, from childhood to motherhood, which we get to do with Vera because she, Mm -hmm. she starts pre- kind of in adolescence and then and then moves through this it's fun to follow and we did this in saint x too it's fun to follow these characters through time and through you know a long arc of of decades and how their experiences later on inform how they look back on the childhood Mm -hmm. that they started out as and that's got to be something that's eternally attractive to you as well I think so. You know, I think this one covers probably an even bigger span of time. Vera is 16 when the novel opens, but she does tell us a lot about her early childhood because, of course, it's so, I mean, all of our childhoods are very <laughs> important to us, but but she lost her mother and she can't remember her. So, and that's another feature of this town is that when a mother vanishes, her memory sort of slowly fades from the town too. And so Vera, you know, tells us about this early childhood and the difficulty of knowing that she had her mother for five or six years and she can't remember her. And then all the way through, she's, you know, it doesn't say exactly, but she's probably in her forties when the novel ends. And I, yes, I really like, this is not, this is not written as flashback. It's not written in the retrospective mode, but it definitely has that feeling of a woman looking back on her life at the things that happened to her at the choices she made um, in the face of the things that were happening to her and trying to kind of make sense of her choices and figure out, well, you know, 
I think she makes a lot of choices that shock her. I think she thinks of herself as a sort of mild, shy, quiet, unobtrusive sort of person. And she makes a lot of big choices in her life that she then has to kind of reevaluate who she is in light of the fact that she did in fact make those, those decisions. Yeah. Did you, or did you feel guided by any other authors or books in this genre? I know that this has been likened to Shirley Jackson's The Lottery and Margaret Atwood has been brought up. And I know a lot of writers who, when they're working in a a genre that they could be compared to, they run away from it. You know, they um, really try not to read in that genre so that they're not in conversation with it and other people lean in. And I was just wondering if you, if you had authors you leaned into or you avoided. So I feel like I did a mix. You know, there were definitely The lottery is very clearly an inspiration for this book. I love Shirley Jackson. I would say I didn't, once I knew I was writing this book, I didn't go back and reread the lottery. But I think there were those books and not just books, but films that and short stories that were kind of in me already that were inspirations for this. One which, you know, thematically is totally different, but there's a Donald Bartlemy story called A City of Churches, which mm. is kind of set in a, in a kind of freaky small town. Mm. Um, and there are actually a few sort of Easter egg references to that story in the novel. And then, you know, there are some films that just atmospherically were driving this. Big Fish has this town called Spectre in it that, that has a little bit of the vibe of, of the town and elsewhere. So there were, there were things that were sort of already there. One thing I hadn't read was The Handmaid's Tale, which, which I only read after this whole book was finished. And because I, I just felt like, oh, it's too close. I can't look at it. Um, <laughs> and now, now there's, there are things, and there are, there are other books that I kind of became, you know, knew were in this family. And so didn't read as I was writing the book, but then did read sort of once I had a draft or once it was in production. And, and it was really interesting to see, you know, The Buried Giant by Ishiguro was one of those that I read sort of once I had a draft, A Luminous Republic by Andres Barr. But there were, there were like a bunch of books like that where I didn't read it while I was writing. But then when I went back and looked at it, I kind of said, oh, these are all the overlaps between a lot of these books are a little bit uncanny, except of course they're not because they're all trying to create these isolated sort of mythical communities. So, you know, I think they all, uh, just to take an example, elsewhere has a river that runs past the town and it plays a pretty big role in the plot. And I think like I've read three or four novels as I was finishing this that were set in enclosed communities, but also had a river. And it makes so much sense, right? Because it's like one of your only connections to the outside world is this sense that there is this water and it is flowing and it flows by this town, but it also flows by the rest of the, by not the rest of the world, but it, it, it goes elsewhere. And they need a water source, <laughs> just <too>. practically right. <laughs> speaking. <laughs> right. So St. X, I hear, is being turned into miniseries or a film? Uh, a series. series. Um, yeah, it's being filmed right now. In, they're in Brooklyn right now shooting which is kind of great. It's kind of crazy. (laughs) Love it. So I was wondering if that gave you sort of a um, cinematic view on this novel, if you know that one is, is headed in that direction, if it makes you see other things you're working on cinematically or, you know, much more visually than you would if you were kind of just restricting yourself to the world of the novel. I think that that's sort of my natural inclination already is I mean, obviously my books are very interior, so that's not cinematic necessarily, <laughs> but, but I'm, oh, I've always been a very visual person, a very, you know, a, I care a lot about the aesthetics of the world around me. Um, I don't know if you can hear, but right outside my window right now, it's just torrentially raining, which is kind of mm. reminiscent of the world of this town and elsewhere. But yeah, I think that that, I wouldn't say that knowing that CNX was going to be adopted change that I just think that I'm always very tuned into the aesthetics of setting not necessarily of characters I mean I think there are very few specific physical descriptions of the characters and what they look like because I I don't know I just never find that super important but of the of the place and of of the you know the atmosphere of the place for sure yeah 
Let's talk about some of your minor characters because there's a big cast of minor characters. Mm-hmm. I think there was in Saint X too. I think there was 14 point of view characters we talked about last time. So this this really is sort of centered on Vera, but there are a big, you know, the town is full of women. And so I'm wondering as a writer, how you kind of manage the this cast of characters, how much you know about them, how you keep track of them, if you have little mini arcs set out for their kind of minor, not minor, but their, you know, their evolution alongside Vera's bigger evolution. And, you know, if you have Word documents on your computer or notes all over you taped to your walls, kind of tracking this this cast Greek chorus cast of minor characters. Yeah. Well, I don't I don't think there are quite so many characters in this novel that I would have needed a chart, but I do have a pretty bad, I do in general find it hard to keep track of everything in a novel. So that wouldn't be surprising if I did. But I, you know, I think that minor characters are so important to kind of convincing the reader of the realness of the world that your char- your main characters are living in. As readers, I think we bring an understanding of how fiction operates to every book that we read. And as a writer, you can subvert those assumptions and understandings in a way that gives you a lot of sort of narrative impact. And I think one of those expectations is that when a reader is introduced to a minor character, there are certain signals that you can give a reader, this is a minor character, they will remain a minor character. You know, somebody who seems to just be there sort of for comic effect or somebody who is sort of introduced by one defining detail. And every time you encounter them, it's just, oh, yeah, there's there's so and so with her funny hat or or whatever it is (laughs) that that kind of trains the reader to think. This is just somebody who's part of the backdrop and I don't need to pay too much attention to them. And I, I think I, I did it in Sanex and I did it here too. And I always love kind of subverting that expectation and letting those characters have their moment, like a moment where they take center stage for a moment, a moment where they kind of say, you know, no, you think you understand me, but actually you don't. And so there is you know, in, I'm thinking in particular with this book of a character named Sally, mm-hmm. who is, she's like a middle-aged woman. She wears frou-frouy clothes with lace. She wears lots of makeup. She's she's one of the only women in this town who doesn't have a child, who is not a mother, because it's not a rule in the town that you need to become a mother, but there's a sense that if you don't, you don't have any value. And not only do you not have any value, but you're never going to truly test yourself in the way that a woman who becomes a mother does. So it's, it's not a rule, but it's kind of a pressure that, that almost everyone acts upon. And Sally doesn't have a child. And so the whole town kind of thinks of her as frivolous and nosy and gossipy and annoying. And then there is a moment when the townspeople and the reader sort of understand that was all wrong. They completely Mm -hmm. misunderstood who this woman was and what she was all about. And I I just, I love those little arcs because I think they're really not fun to write because hers is is not happy necessarily, but, but I love that sense that people you weren't paying attention to in the novel can surprise you and can assert themselves and remind you that these main characters are not the only people whose lives are complicated. There's also a subtle understanding that as women age, they Mm. also disappear. It's a different kind of disappearing and they do that too. And I thought that was really woven throughout this, you know, very nicely. And, and Sally was sort of this clawback of, look at me, I'm going to wear these outrageous clothes and you can't help but notice me because I, I won't go quietly into the gentle night here. But I thought that was, was an emotional truth too, that, that really came through here. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a sense that the young women who are having children, who have young children, who are very vulnerable to the possibility of the affliction are at the very center of this town. And they're kind of revered, right? There's, I mean, they're treated quite well, except for the fact that they might completely disappear and then everyone will kind of forget them. And so it's it's this really dark trade-off. And then the women who survived that, right? Which, and I think it does really relate to kind of how we treat women and think of women in our own world, right? They, they make it through, they don't vanish. So presumably they did a good job, right? But now they're not vulnerable anymore. And it's like, nobody even sees them. 
So were there points in this where you got stuck? Because I know I talk to a lot of writers and middles, you know, middles just suck. I mean, a lot of people know how novels begin and they know how they end, but middles, it's easy to get bogged down. And this moved along, you know, I mean, there were some, some shocks in the middle, but I was wondering if there were points in here where you, where you got stuck and how you got yourself out of it. I think that for me, the getting stuck was less about kind of the actual middle of the book, like the middle hundred pages or whatever, but the middle of figuring out the story sort of chronologically in my writing process. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, you know, I, you know, we always hear this distinction. Some people are planners and some people are pantsers. Like some people know the whole story before they set out and some people discover it as they go along. And I'm definitely a planner and I need to at least think I know what all the big inflection points are and what's big picture going to happen to the characters before I start writing. And I thought I knew that with this book. And for two years, I was writing thinking I knew that. But I also kind of knew the whole thing didn't really seem to be working. Mm. Um, And then it was really early on in lockdown. And I was, you know, I was home all day long with the two and a half year old and trying to write and everything was crazy. And I just one night I said, you know what, like these two writers I really like are doing a virtual event. I'm just going to listen to it. And they were both talking about how they were constitutionally planners, but have learned not to be and have learned to just let go a little bit more. And I remember literally the next morning I sat down to write and I said, okay, what would happen if I had just written what I've written so far, but I had no idea what I think is going to, you know, I had no idea of this idea I have for where it's going where would it be going if I just looked at what I've actually written so far? And it was like instantaneous. It was like, there was this Mm. idea that had been in my brain, but I hadn't let myself see it because I thought I had a plan and that wasn't the plan. Mm. Um, And I was like, oh, that's what should happen. That's how all of this comes full circle. There's a little bit of a plot twist at the end. And so I think I was bogged down for just months because I knew I didn't quite have the whole thing figured out. And then once I did, I wrote the first draft a lot, um, you know, pretty quickly from there. That's, so, that's good advice. <laughs> to listen good. to podcasts and go to events because you never know what you're right. going to get from them. Well, I have talked to a lot of authors who allow themselves some freedom of movement in the middle. You know, if, if, the detour takes them off track. They let themselves, you know, frolic a little bit, but Mm -hmm. I do really like this of being able to let go of preconceptions and let the characters drive what you're (laughs) drive the action. Because if you've done your character work and you bring somebody as fully to life as Vera's brought to life, you know, she inherently is sort of a different psychological person. She's going to make her own decisions that you wouldn't necessarily make. So I can, I, I love that. I love that. And I'm sure we now can't give away what it was, but <laughs> no, I can't. I know. This, I feel like this is—it's a hard book to talk about because there are there are choices that she makes, and in some cases, not that far in that I feel like are spoilers. So anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that doesn't mean we're talking in too, you know, excessively vague terms about it. But. No, but the the lessons endure, even if we can't talk right. specifics. Tell me a little bit about working with Celadon books. Both of these books were published by Celadon and, you know, for new writers and especially writers of second novels, second novels usually make writers weep. They're the novel, they're the the speed bump to get, to get over. And once you've done it, you, it's probably smooth sailing from here on out. I hope, I hope. I hope so. That would be be great. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so you've worked with them on both books and Mm -hmm. I don't know if, if you have observations about, you know, finding agent, finding the right publisher, all of that, working with them that, that might be useful for people to hear. Yeah. I mean, I think, so when I sold St. X, it was a two book contract. So it was going, always going to be St. X and something else. And the contract said nothing about what that something else needed to be. And I, I mean, I basically just feel incredibly lucky because my, my editor, Deb Futter, I think, you know, at some point she asked me for a few sentences of what this book was going to be about. And the sentences that I gave her made it very clear that it was going to be a total departure from the first novel. And she just kind of said, okay. And I I wrote it. And for a few years, I really just wrote it 
in privacy and in in quiet and in my own you know it was just in my hands and they really you know the whole team there really just kind of embraced this novel and often I I just think that's the fear right is that if you're writing something that's somewhat of a different genre that's not necessarily the exact same readership that that's a problem and I just basically feel really lucky that I landed somewhere that was just open to saying, okay, do we like the book? Um, yeah. Not, oh, how are we going to, you know, market this, but just do we like this book? So yeah, that's, that was kind of my trajectory. trajectory. Well, and it's nice that you don't get pigeonholed into one section of the bookstore, right? That yeah. When you write the next book, people will be like, I don't know what's coming. Could be, <laughs> could be. And hopefully, hopefully they just be in the fiction section, you know. Is there advice you give? I know you have an MFA and um, I don't know if you feel like that was really instrumental in, in your success or if there are other observations or things you've learned along the way from professors or other writers that have really sustained you? You know, I think my MFA was really helpful just in the time that it gave me to write and the community of, you know, people who, you know, a few people I still exchange work with and all of that. But I was writing very much like social realist short fiction in grad school. If you had told me when I was getting my MFA that I was going to publish a sort of a murder mystery thriller and a speculative novel, I would have just been shocked. And, and I think it took me a while to open out what I was writing and just be less, I guess, I guess my advice would just be to not be too sure too soon that you know the kinds of things you write and to be open to the possibility that there are genres you haven't tried, you know, structure, you know, structural innovations or experimentations you haven't tried yet that might really work for you and your voice or the themes that fascinate you. Um, because I think it really took me a long time to figure out the kinds of stories I wanted to tell. And, you know, this book is really different from the one before. And the thing I'm starting to work on now is really different from both of those. You know, they have enduring preoccupations and, and themes that I'm always interested in, but just, just an openness, I guess, would be my best advice. Do you think the attraction or the tendency you had to write social realism in your MFA program was a result of pressure that you received from the program? No. no. Okay. No, I don't think so. I think it was totally a sense, like an inner sense, because there were people doing all kinds of things. I mean, most of it, well, there was a lot of social realism, but there was all kinds of all kinds of other things too. And I do think MFA programs, you know, now many of them are sort of even more open to genre and to all, all kinds of things like that. But, but I think it was not necessarily an internal pressure from myself, but just a sense of, I thought I knew what kind of thing I was going to be writing. And I thought it was going to be, you know, small family dramas about people who had grown up as I had grown up or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. And so I, I think the other, you know, corollary of that is I, I think for me personally, and I don't think this is sort of a generally applicable advice, but I think my own writing got a lot better when I stopped writing people who were sort of based on people I knew or based on me. Mm -hmm, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. So I, again, I, I don't think that's universal advice, but for me personally, it kind of opened me up to different stories. It's funny because it sounds like your experience in planning this novel and planning your own career was sort of the, on the same trajectory, right? You allowed yourself permission to look up and say, what if everything yeah. that's come before this, she just makes a different move and exactly. goes over here. It must be something in there psychologically, but I'll get off my psychiatry couch. So we can follow you. You've got a website. Yes. Yeah. And, and, um, and Instagram and all that good stuff. And I assume you're going to, are you going to do um, both physical and virtual events for the book where people can I, follow you? I am going to be doing a virtual event with Claire Beams, Book Passage, and a bunch of other oh, West Coast stores on, I believe, June 29th. And then if you, I, I'm going to do, I think, an in-person at Booksmith in July oh, cool. uh, and a few virtual events too.
Fantastic. So people should probably check out your website. I assume they'll be listed up there where we can find you. Good. Good, good, good. Well, this was a pleasure. Some Elsewhere is out June 28th, I believe. June 28th. Yep. Published by Celadon. And uh, Alexis, this is always a pleasure. I can't wait for the next one. Thank you so much. It was really fun talking to you. That was Alexis Shaken. The book is Elsewhere. It's out and available on June 28th, published by Celadon. Coming up in future episodes is Eric Nguyen and Things We Lost to the Water. In addition to our Patreon page, you can also visit our websites, barbarasispenonfire.com or barbarademarcobarrett.com. Mine is mariestone.com, M-A-R-R-I-E stone.com. You can always subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, and Stitcher. As always, our fantastic music and sound design was provided by Travis Barrett. You can find him at travis.mykajabi.com. That's M-Y-K-A-J-A-B-I.com. That's all the time we have for today. We will be right back here with you next week. So until next time, thanks so much for joining me. Have a great day.